the initial answer is like gut feeling and intuition. Where the gut feeling and where the intuition comes from, I think it comes from these three sort of factors. One, how unique is it? Two, how much of a wow factor is there? And three, is this something that you could easily obtain at your nearest sort of supermarket? Those are sort of what happens when I try to break down why I would rate something high. I think it, it also comes from looking at literally thousands of products. And it also comes from person testing. You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast. Your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Andy Mai is on a mission to help 1,000 dropshippers earn the same freedom he has, the same freedom we're all after, myself included. And while we sink our teeth into some important topics about new ways to learn and sell online, our usual bread and butter, Andy Mai also demonstrates that we can be as efficient in living as well as work. I didn't think there was room for optimization during lunchtime, but I was wrong. Have a listen. Andy Mai, it is good to have you here on Ecomonics. How are you doing today, man? How are you feeling? How are things going? Pretty good, pretty good. Just been pretty busy um, coming into the end of the year. Lots of things going on, but yeah, I've been good. Nothing to complain about. Is this one of your, I know you have like two off days. Is this one of your work days or one of your off days? That's good research. So recently, beforehand, I had project days and work days. The project days would be on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Fridays, and my work days would be Monday and Wednesday. But recently, I've pivoted this week. This is the first week where my two work days are on Monday and Tuesday. So I compressed my work days and Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays, these should be open. This technically should have been a work day, hence I had this sort of podcast booked in, um, but with the changes. Um, my goal with it is that by putting the two work days together, I would keep that same flow going. So if I finish Monday, I could keep that momentum going into Tuesday. And then when I have three project days in a row, I would keep the momentum of researching, planning systems out um, in three days in a row. Because previously with the Monday and Wednesday setup, I would work on Monday and I'll collapse on Tuesday. Then I'll work on Wednesday right. and I'll collapse on Thursday. And now there's two dead days. Whereas in this setup, maybe Wednesday could be like a half day where I'm still recovering from the two days of intense work, but I still have two and a half full days in a row or just working on bigger picture things. Okay. Interesting. So one of the things I will say about, you know, the nine to five structure, although a lot of the people that I talk to, they've uh, rejected it. There are a lot of factors about it that made it work. And one of them is that Saturday and Sunday are two day off days in a row. I've tried that in the past too. I've tried to have like an off day in the middle of the week, then an off day on the weekend. And yeah, the momentum, all, it doesn't just shift down. It, it, there's no good way to kind of just like pause that momentum and then go back up into it. So we'll, we'll delve into the psychology of that because from the content that I've looked at, you don't just talk about how people can get into the industry and how people can clear those first major hurdles. But uh, we also talk a lot about um, mindset too on the show. So I, I definitely want to sink our teeth into that. But we have it a question. It's well, it's not contractual an obligation or anything, but I scarce wish to break with tradition. So Andy Mai, first question, who are you and what do you do? Awesome. So my name is Andy Mai. Who I am? Uh, I'm a 21-year-old Australian kid. Uh, my parents are Vietnamese. They came to Australia on a boat. Um, I grew up in Australia, started learning about entrepreneurship when I was 18, started getting into dropshipping and e-commerce around 18. Beforehand, I did a bunch of things from like selling lollies at in year to selling things in game, flipping clothing, Supreme Palace Babe. Um, but since 18 till now, 21, I've been just focused on e-commerce. I've been focusing on consulting and I've been focusing on teaching others how to do the same. Fantastic. I know from your backstory that your, um, you know, your mother was uh, having a, a hard go of it. Uh, she had to take care of you and your sibs. And that was one of the major catalysts to uh, understanding commerce. Not quite, it wasn't e-commerce at first. First, it was just commerce, commerce. And I know that was important to you that she, you wanted her to be well off. So one thing I'm wondering is, how's your family doing right now? Yeah, so I think previously, 
my mom was definitely in more of a situation where she really relied on every paycheck and she really relied on having to work seven days a week. Now, I think now she's in a point where she knows all three of her kids, you know, now we all have our own jobs. We all have money. Um, we have sort of money sitting in her mortgage account just to reduce the interest. And she's sort of in a much safer position where she knows that, you know, worse comes to worse, things will be okay. She still works two jobs. My goal next year is initially I wanted her to just quit one job, just keep one job so it'll keep her busy. Um, but since she's pretty fond of both the childcare and the working in the optometrist as a sales rep, she enjoys both jobs. So maybe next year she could reduce working three days and four days or three, three down to one day on each. And that's sort of my goal next year so that she wouldn't have to work seven days a week and like, Know, or six days a week and you know she can catch up on sleep mm-hmm. and and one thing that i i'm sure is true as well is the difference between being able to go into that work more for the joy of it and more for the ability to really make meaningful choices and connect with people because I, i've done a number of sales jobs and i would consider obviously having good commission was great but knowing that I had a meaningful impact on different people throughout the day, that was the thing that I still think about to this day. So it's the difference between having to do that job to survive versus having to do that job because she loves it and she just wants to continue doing it. A thousand percent. I definitely noticed a shift where she's no longer, you know, forced to sort of do, she doesn't rely on the job. Now it's just something that she does sort of fun and there's no pressure. I think without that pressure, it changes everything. Um, so one thing I want to uh, talk about with your your evolution into the position that you are now is that you were able to learn in different environments. And what I noticed is that with each subsequent environment, things got less safe. So the first one, as far as I understand, the first really the delving into e-commerce was in video games. Because whether the the economy is part of the the canon or the lore, like how in World of Warcraft there are economies within the factions, or it was a meta economy, like how in Counter Strike people are bartering for skins. And well, I know in Counter Strike you don't necessarily buy weapons because it's all skins, but that's outside of the context of the game. In either case, you were understanding how this works to the point where that was more compelling than the gameplay itself. And then from there, you switched over to, you know, buying and selling on Facebook and Gumtree, uh, just, you know, like um, case by case, right? It was just a one jacket here, uh, a bicycle there, followed by delving into dropshipping by the time you were in university. So from the beginning of this evolution, uh, for one, I'd love to hear you expand on it in case there's any part of it that I maybe glossed over or anything that's uh, important about it uh, that we want to talk about. But uh, the core of the question is that what skills did you pick up? from the beginning that were consistent through to the position you're in today? Got it. So when I sort of was selling, so in year two, when I was like roughly year two, three, when I was like eight years old, I would go to the sort of local supermarket and I'll buy these bags of red skin. I don't know if you have it in America, but it's this Australian lolly. It's this red candy that you can pull and it stretches. It's sort of like a candy. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can buy a bag for like $3. It'll have say 50 pieces in it. And I will sell each piece for 50 cent, 30 cent, a dollar to my classmates. And I think what sort of triggered me to do that was I just, you know, I saw the canteen was selling, you know, these jelly sort of thing, like these sort of um, ice jelly things, these um, icicle pops at a markup where I was like, wow, these are super cheap in the supermarket, but they're marking it up in the canteen. Why can't I do the same, but make it cheaper than the canteen so the students and kids can go straight to me. Um, and I think maybe I saw one or two other students do the same. Um, so I went ahead and did that. And that was sort of my first experience of, you know, buying something for retail and marking it up and just selling it at an increased price because of convenience. Then I really took that mentality into Maple Story, where I wanted to, in MapleStory, similar to real life, um, you can sort of play the game for free and you look like a person that is like a free-to-play person. And you would always be surrounded by all these other people with like paid gear, um, expensive gear. And I would always be like, that's so cool. Like it was like, it felt like real life where I was just here wearing like plain t-shirts and plain shorts and someone next to me is wearing a pair of Yeezys. He has a Rolex on. Like the same feeling was maybe because I was younger at the time, but I had the same sort of like envy within the game. So I was like, damn, I want to make money so I could have all that gear. 
So I started learning how to flip and buy and sell. I think, you know, I was on YouTube, like how to make money in MapleStory. And then I was able to learn something called merching, uh, where you buy things for low, you'll sit in front of the free market saying, hey, I'm looking to buy all these things, negotiate with people, try to get it at the lowest price possible, and then sell it at a markup. So that's sort of where I really learned one, negotiation, two, buy low, sell high, three, that's when I really learned a sense of like if I'm getting scammed because within that game, I got scammed multiple times and like I learned how to smell like the, if this is too good to be true, true, it's too good to be true. Um, and I really got that instincts from MapleStory. Then I transitioned to CSGO where I really did the exact same thing, but with on like a free market sort of system, um, similar sort of strategies, um, buy low, sell high, a lot of negotiating, a lot of predicting. But what I learned new was I was now predicting which items would go up in price. So the new skill I learned there was prediction of supply demand, um, items going up in price, knowing that, hey, this case is now limited edition so that the skins within these cases are going to slowly go up in price as there's less cases. And that's what I took from that when I got into buying and selling. What I learned is, wow, I could do this with real-life money. I could do this in real life. Um, I learned how to sort of meet people in person. I would take the train, take the bus to different locations to meet up with people and buy their items. I learned how to be really wary of not getting scammed in real life, not having someone, you know, try to steal my money or send me a fake piece of item. I learned how to sort of recheck if items are authentic. Um, And I really learned how to negotiate with people in real life with real money. Um, so those are sort of all the experiences I learned from all these sort of small things I'll do throughout the way. Um, one more thing that comes to mind is I used to also buy these um, buy styles from AliExpress. I'll ship them. They were 30 cents each. I'll buy them in bulk, ship them to Australia, buy, say, 100 at a time, and I'll sell them each for like a dollar or $2 on eBay. So I'd make a, you know, 300 to 600% return, package each one in mailers, send them out one by one. Um, what I learned there is like how to ship items, Oh, that was another important thing. With the buying and selling clothing, I learned how to package items. I learned how to ship items. I learned the cheapest way. I learned the like having to weigh items. I learned how to charge for shipping and really taking that into account when it comes to profit margins. Um, so yeah, that's quite a few quite a few answers there. Um, one thing I think this is just like a, a cultural difference. You said canteen. I think here in North America that would be the cafeteria. Correct where the students go to, okay, they eat their lunch. Yeah, you know, another thing too that uh, I just thought was interesting, this doesn't, this, despite my, my my many, many hours logged in video games, is I don't, I didn't really think about this before, but when you're when you're on MapleStory and you have your own uh, free-to-play gear, it pales in comparison to the, um, to the pay-to-play gear. gear. And, and one thing for, for non-gamers is that some games will allow you to buy things that make you more powerful, uh, which is referred to as pay to win, and it's usually looked down on. But other times, uh, you could buy stuff, and this is the more ethical, this is the more accepted version of it, which is just selling aesthetics. So if a character wanted a cool armor plate or wings or a, a helmet or something, and no effect on the gameplay, it would just be an aesthetic thing. But here's the catch, though, is that aesthetics actually do have an impact on gameplay because what they do is they convey a level of experience or commitment or possibly even skill on behalf of the player. So if somebody has all that set gear, even if it doesn't give them any bonuses, it still messes with somebody's head. Conversely, if somebody has the you know, uh, uh, free-to-play gear or they don't look aesthetically pleasing, the other players will treat them differently. So even aesthetics actually do have a psychological effect on the player. And the main observation that I think is really fascinating is how that peer pressure is parallel to the peer pressure that people face in school in real life. When some people have the money for these things and other people don't, and the people who don't have to be craftier. You know, they don't get to go first in the game of chess and stuff like that. Most definitely, most definitely. I think that really bred and sort of lit a fire and was one of the catalysts. Yeah. And one of the observations that I pointed out from that is you had learned about the markup at a really early age. I'm 31 now. I didn't really understand what markup was until 23 when uh, my more... It wasn't even my first sales job, too. By the way, it was like my my second or third sales job when the the store owner says, "Yeah, I buy at a cost, and then I double the price." I'm like, 
whoa, yeah, that makes sense. That's how they, I, I, I had no idea. What I, what I'm wondering about is, and you've, t- you've touched on it briefly is justifying the markup in your own mind, because you'll, you'll see that the, the canteen is selling them a lot for a lot more than the supermarket. And it's, it's out of the convenience of it. So in your mind, did you have to consider exactly what the markup actually represents? Do you have any reservations about the, the economic system unfolding before you? Yeah. When I was young, I didn't understand like, why would a student go in and buy this sort of popsicle for a dollar when you could literally buy a bag filled with them for $2. So they'll be at cheap, as cheap as like 20, 10 to 20 cent each. But here kids are going to the canteen cafeteria buying them for a dollar. So it didn't make sense to me. I was like, like I just saw it as a gap in the market. It's like, wow, if they can make that much money, so can I. Um, I think that's sort of what I was thinking at the time. And 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 it reflects it reflects effort, it reflects uh, intuition, it reflects all of these things. So the next thing I want to do is I want to uh, talk about some of the things I've observed from your YouTube channel. I, I I say it every time to our listeners is you know we only get so much done in an hour, so it is worth going to uh, Andy's YouTube channel to check it out. And now I say that every time, but I mean it every time because frankly, everybody that I've talked to has been fascinating. And so what's important to me is to look for what's unique about this YouTube channel. So then that way people have a clear picture of why they should go visit Andy's content versus a lot of the other content. Spoiler alert, check them all out. But for for your sake, let's uh, get into some of this. So you have a really great series called Getting Your First Sale. Um, I didn't watch all of them, but I did watch the first one. And what you do is you are recording the dialogue that you're having with your students so in a way the audience or the viewer are projecting themselves onto the student so the student is asking the questions that the audience are very likely to ask because they're in the same place and what i observed was you were rating the product that the student was showing you and you would give it a six out of ten one of it was a seven out of ten um and i want to know more about the criteria for that rating so when you're when you're observing these products you're you're seeing them for like you know like a, a second, two seconds, and you're already figuring out what's its overall value. So how do you do that? Got it. So the initial answer is like gut feeling and intuition. Now, when I really dig into where the gut feeling and where the intuition comes from, I think it comes from these three sort of factors: one, how unique is it; two, how much of a wow factor is there; and three. Is this something that you could easily obtain at your nearest sort of supermarket? Those are sort of what happens when I try to break down why I would rate something high. I think it it also comes from looking at literally thousands of products. And it also comes from personally testing hundreds of products. Like I'm pretty sure I've tested like nearly 500 products. And when you test like, you know, literally 200, 5 out of 10 products and you see them flop, now you sort of build it in your mind that, okay, this product is an under 5 out of 10 because it flops. And when you have like, you know, 10 to 20 winners that are like 7 plus out of 10 and you've had 10 of them, you're now sort of building your mind and bringing your mind, okay, this is what a 7 plus out of 10 looks like. So it comes from experience, intuition, um, as well as those criteria I mentioned. Would you would you mind um, giving us a couple of examples of some recent stuff that you looked at that scored high or scored low? Yeah, one hundred percent. So let me think. Trying to think. So for example, like the winners that I can remember clearly was for example this LED face mask. This LED face mask I sold it during Halloween. And the reason why it popped off was because it was completely new. No one saw it before. It was completely u- unique. Um, it had this cool sort of Joker sort of mask looking and this was before the joker movie came out this was like a year ago um and the reason why it popped up was it just was so cool it was interesting and that was sort of one of the hot products another one of the hot products was one of this hair coloring wax where it's it's literally like normal hair wax but you'll put in your hand you do your hair and your hair would turn into a color that you chose so that was pretty cool 
Um, so those would be different examples. Some more recent examples, I can't really think on the top of my mind. Like every sort of week, I try to do these mastermind calls with my students and I rate their products. Um, but since I'm seeing so many products at a time, um, it doesn't, I'm going on a blank right now. Yeah, it's, it's like they, they, they come in and then they go, right? Exactly. And I, yeah. that's how I rate those fast as well. Because I literally just rate them, it goes in and it comes out the other year. So another one of your uh, YouTube projects is um, helping a thousand dropshippers. And and I've heard other people they've they've had these these goals where they want to like achieve like ten thousand or something. Um, and what I liked about the idea of the thousand dropshippers is that it actually sounds quite tangible. There's a lot of people in the world, and there's a lot of people who want to make money. What's what's the status of this project? How far along are you? Are you? And what's uh, I also want to know what was the idea behind it too? Got it. So with the first question, how long, how far am I into it? Right now, if you go to my website, I have thirty four video testimonials so these are 34 students that went out of their way and filmed a testimonial talking about how i've been able to help them i've been able to help them quit their jobs i've been help help them get into e-commerce and they basically help them make money online and these are 34 sort of video testimonials unlike sort of most other gurus they just send you like this a bunch of screenshots but as you all know screenshots are basically worthless now because there's just so much of them but video testimonials are sort of what i'm looking for so my goal is to have a thousand video testimonials from people all over the world. Now, what made me sort of create the series is I wanted to really document the journey. Um, what really inspired me was Ka- Kylie Jenner. So Kylie Jenner, the reason why she was able cr- to crash Shopify and the reason why she became one, she became a billionaire at her age was she created a story. Like she was documenting the process of creating her makeup brand. What she did was when making her product, she would create Instagram stories, bring people on her journey. She would show them inside the factory. She would show them the product that was made. She would sort of ask them to pick what color they wanted, what packaging they wanted. And they really, she brought everyone on her journey. So that's sort of what I wanted to do with that vlog series, bring people on my journey of trying to help a thousand dropshippers. If you don't know this, that, that's cool. But I've never really, I, I mean, I don't give Kylie Jenner that much uh time of day in my own mind but was that how she started all of this or like was or was she already did she already have a reputation or a personality before she got into that if you don't know it's cool but i don't know i don't i don't i'm not normally curious about that i think she had the keeping up with the kardashians where she was sort of one of the right okay she was part of that yeah so she had sort of a following she had an audience she's been able to take it to like the next level because like for example Keeping up with the Kardashians is nowhere as big as, say, for example, Friends or mm-hmm. How I Met Your Mother. But none of those characters or none of those TV guests have been able to build a billion-dollar brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a that's an important thing too. I mean, because I know stuff like Friends and How I Met Your Mother and The Office. A lot of these shows have tremendous staying power, so the brand has a lot of effect even to this day. I I'm guilty of it. I still check out clips of The Office on my algorithm. It comes up. I can't I can't fight it. A couple of other um, questions for you, more on the uh, on the dropshipping on the e-commerce side, and then I want to also talk about some of your other you, some of the other YouTube videos, some stuff about how you optimize your mindset and stuff like that. And I know you get this question a lot about shipping times in in the realm of dropshipping on AliExpress. People will ask you about the ideal shipping times. So for the dropshippers who haven't been able to reduce the wait times, uh, what are stores doing to make up for this? So I think the myth is slowly starting to die out so one aliexpress is just getting really good with their shipping times two people forget that we're selling products that people cannot get anywhere else so the fact they're getting this brand new unique product from china is a strong enough reason for them to wait because they can't get this anywhere else three we try to have a really strong customer service where we really reassure all our customers that hey here's the tracking number the product is on its way. It's being dispatched. Be patient because it's going to arrive. Um, and four, we sort of like to have a track my own package section on our website so customers can track the status mm-hmm. of where their product is. So those are the four answers I usually have for that question. You've definitely had uh, chances to practice that one. 100%. And it keeps building up. Yeah. So th- this one, uh, this was a video of yours, but it's, um, it's all about eight months ago. And e-commerce space, even a month, uh, is uh, quite a significant amount of time. 
Um, but you were talking about how brands aren't taking advantage of YouTube. And again, I do need you to expand on that just so that our, our, our listeners understand exactly what they're not doing on YouTube or what sellers aren't doing. Um, but it's been eight months. So I, the second part of it is also if you've seen any major changes yet or if the overall uh, premise is still holding true to this day. Got it. So the biggest thing that is sort of underestimated and undervalued on YouTube is the power of retargeting your own audience. So what if, for example, Logan Paul retargeted his 20 million subscribers, retargeted his 10 million views per month with ads about his clothing? It'll be game over. He'll be killing it. But these people just don't know about the YouTube advertising space and game. Right. And me, I, I'll admit, I don't really know it myself either. Um, the, the YouTube ads that I've been seeing lately, I mean, I've got my, um, I, I've got my, my, my personal account and for the most part, the ads that are popping up are just diner dash. I don't know. They, they really want me to order uh, a poke bowl, it's, you know, more power to them. But, um, I, it was more, what's more interesting is I have, uh, my, my, my debutify YouTube account, which is basically every time I have a guest to prepare for, I subscribe to their channel. So the algorithm sees me as like this person who's exceedingly eager to consume as much content as I possibly can. And so every time I check out a video, the algorithm is sending me another e-commerce expert who wants to talk to me about their, their funnel system or something along those lines. And also I grab the URLs and I put them on a list and I'm going to uh, contact them to be on a, be a guest on our show later down the line. But where exactly are these uh, ads fitting in into the YouTube space? Got it. So where you'll see these ads would be the pre-roll ads. So on the Debutify account, what are the type of pre-roll ads or the skip now ads you would see? Lately, um, it has exclusively been other e-commerce uh, and entrepreneurs in the space. I, I, I can't think of anything else. And I mean, what I can actually do uh, just as a fun little test to see what happens if I were to pull up a video right now. Yeah. So was it, but, uh, you're saying, so it's during the pre-roll. So before a video is activated. Exactly. So that's where I'd run all my ads in the pre-roll as well. Sometimes when you see suggested videos, there'll be like an ad video that's suggested. Um, and my ad would definitely be there as well. And retargeting is so undervalued. Like, I don't know why people are trying to reach people cold, when they could just retarget their organic traffic. So what I recently learned is I was studying like Tony Robbins, um, Russell Brunson, and Dean Graziowski. All these guys, they don't do any cold traffic ads. All they do is they focus on organic traffic, social media, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, maybe TikTok, and they retarget that audience with paid traffic. They never go ahead and send their ads to cold audience. And that's why I've been doubling down on recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then um, on the other side of that too is then what's been the main route to acquire that traffic in the first place? Is it primarily on Facebook or are you trying to acquire people on YouTube? Exactly. So I try to acquire people everywhere. So I'm on like okay. YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram, um, Facebook, and I'm posting multiple times on each platform because I really want to squeeze the lemon when it comes to the organic traffic. Mm-hmm. I, you know, okay. So um, before I, I get my next question chambered, uh, LinkedIn I don't actually get that one brought up too much. So uh, can you specify more what you're up to on LinkedIn? Yeah. So on LinkedIn, me and my team is every day we're posting three posts. It'll be valid posts about dropshipping, e-commerce mindset. And our goal is just to give people value every single day. And it's crazy. Like we get a lot of organic reach that isn't seen anywhere else. Like every post we're posting gets like 50 views, 70 views, 120 views. This is all organic. And usually when you start with, no sort of connections or no followers, it shouldn't be that easy to get that many views. But LinkedIn is sort of like Facebook 10 years ago. And I got that sort of heads up from Gary Vee. So I have to give him credit for that. Fair enough. Well, I mean, one thing I, I want to say about LinkedIn too is that, so here's what happened. So somebody messages me about my uh, my, podca- my podcast and I said, oh, yeah, check it out. And you know, if you want to be a guest on their show, feel free to reach out. But at that time, I didn't put, Ecomonics on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn was out of date. So then I, I wrote down, okay, well, one of the things I got to do this week is I got to update my LinkedIn page. And so I updated it. Now I said that I'm the host of Ecomonics. And there were some similarities to Facebook because it would show up on the feed and other people that I knew in my network um, would message me and say, hey, congratulations. And there is an organic social aspect to LinkedIn that I don't think people really recognize in it. 
it's taken them a while, but I think for me that I, the thing that I actually like about LinkedIn now is there's a barrier for entry where if people, I mean, it's free to sign up, but if people are on LinkedIn, it means they're up to something. It's, it's people who recognize that they're not trying to present their value. They know that they have value and they're looking to contribute that and also to find ways to you know, be a part of somebody else's network too. So yeah, LinkedIn's underrated. I, I got I to gotta give a shout out to him. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Because if you were to do the same thing on Facebook, you would not get the same response. Like not many people would see it. You wouldn't get that engagement. You wouldn't get people congratulating you. It wouldn't be like something that would pop up on top of their feed. And LinkedIn has done an amazing job of doing that. And so I think all supply and demand. Like on Facebook, there's the, the supply, the demand has been the same. But the supply has been enormous. Same with Instagram. Right. Whereas with LinkedIn, the demand has slowly been increasing, but there's not enough supply. So whatever you put out, everyone's going to see it. Not only all your connections are going to see it, but other people that you don't even know about will see it as well. That's why it's so powerful. Yeah. I, I, you know, one test that I should probably deploy is to see what happens if I update um, Ecomonics on my Facebook page just to see what response I get there. I, I do think that I would get people um, saying messages, even if it's just a like or it's saying a congratulations. Uh, I think the difference is the inherent, and this is going to sound almost like I'm denigrating people, I'm not, but there is more inherent value to the people who are engaged on LinkedIn because they're on LinkedIn for whatever reasons they want to establish themselves for. Whereas on Facebook, I can get a like from somebody that I never even met. I have no idea who this person is. For this person is like one of the 20 people that wishes me happy birthday every year, even though we've never met. And, and I just don't, I don't know anything about them. So there's less inherent value from that engagement. Exactly. Exactly. And a like on LinkedIn is worth 10 times more than a like on Facebook because on Facebook, people are just like mindlessly scrolling down. They're just mindlessly liking the same as Instagram was on LinkedIn, each person is reading every single post and they're liking, like they're, they're putting in time. So when they see an impression, a like is just worth so much more on LinkedIn because people are actually reading and they're not mindlessly scrolling. Right. And, 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 they, and they consider the, 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 that it's worth investing their time into it because anything that is connected to me on LinkedIn could have value, could be someone that's going to be hired could be someone that, well, not that I need a job right now, but it could be someone that hires me down the line. It, it, could, it could be any number of these things. So yeah, well, we could, uh, we can, we can just go on and on about LinkedIn, but I'm going to uh, move us along because there's other stuff from your YouTube that I, uh, I want to get into as well. Uh, major takeaway people, LinkedIn, it's, you know, uh, don't sleep on it. One of the things I also like about your, your channel too, is that you have some cool um, lifestyle I was about to say hacks, just because that's a common parlance in the e-commerce space. So I'm just going to run with it. Some cool lifestyle hacks. Like one of them is trying to get an optimal lunch, where you're trying to figure out like what is the best lunch to have that keeps you energized, um, doesn't tire you out. I realize both of those things are just opposites of one another. Uh, but the video came out in August. So what I'm wondering is, have you settled on an optimal lunch? Have you figured out how to like really energize yourself around uh, around noon or one o'clock, whenever you have it? Yeah, so as of right now, I was talking to a lot of family and friends and a bowl seems like the way to go. Now, I've been pretty lazy. I didn't search up the best recipe. I haven't bought all the ingredients to create acai bowls every lunch. But the things I've sort of taken away is one, don't have something heavy. Two, try not to watch YouTube or watch something while eating lunch because you'll end up watching three episodes and you'll end up munching and eating snacks for the next hour and that's going to just leave you into slump. So try to keep the lunches really short and don't watch anything. And three, try not to have too much carbs and try to not make it too heavy and purposely don't eat until you feel full. Just eat. And if you feel hungry, I don't know, drink a lot of water and you'll mm-hmm. eventually the hunger will go away. Um, but those are probably the three traps that I still fall into right now and I'm trying to work myself out. Yeah, I, I'll admit too that on lunchtime, I usually pull up a YouTube video to, to watch something. The algorithm know the, the algorithm is so good, man. It knows it, it knows that I, I, I watch one person for breakfast. It knows that I'm expecting somebody else during lunchtime. 
Yeah, it, it does. It's always got this one guy ready for me for breakfast. It's become part of my, my ritual. That's, I did not know YouTube did that. I haven't noticed that. That's insane. And that's mind boggling. Like YouTube is like powerful. It is. And, um, and one thing too, is uh, one of the things that I'm trying to work on too, is also if to, to get, a, if I'm going to consume any content is to get away from video content and to just focus on audio content. Um, for one, because, you know, audio is my lifeblood, but also because when my, when our eyes are focused on something, I find that does take away from eating. People don't focus on their, on their food as much. So weeding off from video to audio is better, but I would, but I, but I see where you're going with this too, is weeding off of any content during a lunch and just to focus on, on eating. Uh, cause it, it tends to be overlooked and it tends to be rushed. And then, uh, that's bad for the di- digestive system. If you're going to chew thoroughly, then the food will end up costing more energy to, to digest anyways. And like when you watch content, it's just a huge, like when you visually watch content, it's a huge dopamine rush. It's a huge sort of stimul stimulator. Whereas if you just listen to audio, it's less stimulating, more easy for you to go ahead and go back to getting to work done. Uh, it keeps the mind busy. So you're not too bored. It's sort of the best of both worlds. So I definitely have went through a phase where all I did was listen to audio and I was really productive. Um, I've tried to go ahead and just cut out content completely, but that has been so difficult. But when I have been able to do so, I've been super productive. So I think I might have to sort of get in the middle and just cut out all visual content and go back to just audio and take on what you're doing. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this much. I, I gave you my word that starting tomorrow, I will try for a week to see if I can eat lunch without uh, any content oh, whatsoever. Just, just to see what happens. It's going to be, oh man, I, there, there, there are habits that I've thought I could like, you know, I cancel out, but no, those habits, they set in day after day, year after year, they are hard. Before we, we, we move on from the, uh, from the lunch section of this episode, um, one other food related question for you. This is... Pr- no order light. This might be one of the most eye-opening things that not just that I've seen from your video, but overall, it's how cooking can end up being an inefficient use of time. Uh, where if a person makes a certain amount of money, it's more worthwhile to just uh, I don't know get I guess to get takeout. I was actually going to ask you that. Like, what's the alternative? So, can you tell us our audience about this because this is fascinating. Yeah. So this is something I learned from someone named Sam Ovens, and he was like. Yo, cooking is like one of the most inefficient things. And he talked about it. I was like, whoa, I've never seen it in that light. This is very, very interesting. So I started digging into it, started crunching the numbers like I did that video. And it came out to be like, even if I was being really conservative, if you can make an extra $7 with an extra hour, then it's not worth it to cook. Like you literally could... If like you went home, you spent a whole day at work, rather than cooking from 6 to 7 p.m., you go out on like Hollywood Boulevard, have like a cup and like ask for money on the side of the road. And you could probably rack up probably $10, spend, you know, um, $7 on a meal, come home, eat the meal. And by 7 p.m., you would now be three, you would have an extra $3 versus going home, cooking for an hour, spending $7. No, or like cooking for an hour to save like $7. Um, I think I screwed up the maths there. But basically what I'm trying to say is if you're able to make an extra $7, which is how much you would save by cooking, then it's not worth it to cook. So so what do you do instead? Do you, Are you on a meal plan? Do you, do you get takeout of somebody cooking for you? So there's these things called meal preps. Um, I use this company called My Muscle Chef, but they basically send you a box full of weeks full of food where it's just like microwave food where it's like pretty fresh. It's not like the microwave food um, in like the supermarkets where it's like has a bunch of preservatives. You can, it can last for like the next 12 months. It's like fresh food that is just frozen. And you would microwave it and it's like healthy, not many preservatives. And they'll go from anywhere from eight to 10 Australian dollars, which is around, you know, um, six to seven USD. Is that, is that uh, per meal or per, per day? Per meal. So that means per day, you'll probably be buying out breakfast. I just do cereal, lunch and dinner. I'll go ahead and get those meal preps. So you'll probably be spending $14 
on two meal preps. And if you were to cook yourself, each meal would probably cost around $2. So it costs $4 to cook on your own. So you'll be able to save maybe $10. So that means you spend, I did the calculations, um, like you would probably spend one and a half hours at least to save $10. So that means every hour you spend in cooking, you're only saving $7. So if you could put that hour into making more than $7, you do so. Or if you value having an extra hour with your family and friends versus $7, you should not be cooking. And then obviously there's an argument of like, maybe you enjoy cooking, um, but then I counter the argument. Would you prefer to spend an hour cooking to save $7 or would you prefer to spend an hour with your family and friends and maybe not save that $7, but that $7 is the cost to have an extra hour with your family and friends? Which one would you prefer? Well, you know, from, from my uh, perspectives, my, my, uh, my girlfriend, she does the cooking. It, it, to me, I, for me personally, it's, it, it would be something that I would pose her, uh, you know, what she could be doing with that hour instead. Uh, and yeah, I mean, there is an element of, you know, people do enjoy it as a hobby or as a passion, but I think if people are going to take that argument, then they need to understand that they have to do something with this passion, whether they want to maybe do their own cooking YouTube channel or they want to do a blog about it. In the same way that I think a lot of people who are very smart when they're playing games now is that they're always trying to ways to enhance their their investment. They start their blog, they do streaming, they join a community, they get into the competitive scene so they can try to earn money off of it. So that's the position that I would take if I were to say, if I'm going to cook, I'm I'm doing this to um, uh, invest in myself down the line or build a brand or something along those lines. And man, I, this is, I re- I'm really glad I asked you this question because I wanted people to get a sense of like your ability to calculate these things. It's, it's not something that people think about make, making their meals. So if that's what you come up with for food, you know, wait till people find out what you've come up with for uh, running a store. Yeah, 100%. Like even things that are like the next thing I want to figure out is like, Sam Lovins talked about how having a maid is also something that's efficient. Um, like you might pay the maid, say, $15 an hour, but they keep your whole house clean and just having a cleaner house, you'll feel more productive. Um, when you see something lying on the floor, you have a messy table, yes, it doesn't really affect your work, but psychologically it sort of does a bit. So these psychological yeah. sort of improvements from just having a clean office far outweighs the cost of having a maid and there's sort of like, that's like another example. Yeah. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, you also said that by getting a fish tank, that improved your productivity too. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So the fish tank um, that you see behind me, uh, if you're listening to all that, this fish tank right behind me, it costs. It's on uh, Instagram. So for our listeners, they can check it out on Instagram. Yes. Um, it, I bought the whole setup at an insanely cheap price of $450 or $425. It was an insane steal. It's worth like $2,000. Even if I bought the whole setup at $2,000, every single day, just being able to have this in the background, just being able to look at it, I feel happy. And that like, even if that increased my productivity by 1% a day, that's 365% increase of productivity in a year. That 365% is far outweighs the $2,000. It far outweighs the you know, $20 I might have to spend a month on fish food but i probably wouldn't spend less and uh i mean i i i don't looking at you right now i'm not sure if i've seen you get any happier from turning around looking at the fish tank (laughs) but uh it's a uh maybe 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 a little maybe maybe slight yeah i i I can see it i there this is like we're getting way off topic now but uh, my girlfriend and i we went to uh chinatown and there was this fish that actually like it's a it's a big puffer fish and it smiles and I kept thinking about that fish, how if I just looked at that fish every day and it smiles and I smile back at it, I'm like, oh, I miss that fish. I got to go. You might have to get it. You might have to invest into it. Yeah, man. I, I mean, it, it, it left an impression. So <laughs> I'll, I'll say that. People undervalue the cost of a smile. I'd pay, you know, a dollar to get a free smile every, you know, if someone would give me a, a smile, that's a dollar all these little things all these little things they they add up and they and they give you the power to be more effective and to and to do your work better as opposed to constantly like pulling your own emotional and psychological weight while also trying to get these things done it's yeah it, it, we talk about it a lot on the show and I'm glad we do because 
I, I think if people aren't getting their their own psychology in order, then business is going to crush them into a, a cube and toss them away. Exactly. Like my goal is just to do one percent improvements on every aspect of my life. Like get one percent better at driving, get one percent better at buying parking, getting one percent better at using my phone. If you do this every single day, by the age of sixty, mm-hmm. you're going to be doing really well. So we're, um, we're we're getting into our, our final act here. Um, we've well uh, now counting the uh, bits and pieces we might have to edit out. We've, we've done about like 47, 48 minutes so far. So I'm going to uh, switch over to the um, the educational side. I want to make sure that we I ask you about this too because I know um, the teaching and the education is really important to you. So this one is coming fresh off of your Instagram. I, I don't remember exactly when, but I I don't think it was on your Instagram for very long up until this recording. Yeah. Yesterday. Okay. So yeah, that's even fresher than I thought. Uh, So you got your hands on studying.com. Now the significance of getting a word like that is like, if I, if I manage to land office supplies.com or, or something fundamental to the subject that it's based off. So for you, what's the significance of getting studying.com and what do you, uh, what do you want to do about it? Yeah. So it was, insanely significant because all the other education domains like education.com, teaching.com, learning.com, learn.com, study.com, they've all not only been taken, but they've been taken by they're actively in use. So, for example, if you go to, say, um, strategy.com, it goes to like a landing page where they're like, this is for sale. So that's not an actively used domain. So all the educational right, words right. have been taken and studying.com was the last one. And I was so lucky and so happy to be able to secure it. So that's sort of um, pretty significant because it's a simple word. It's easy to understand. And what people don't realize is that having a simple domain is so powerful, especially if we're going into voice. Eventually, people are going to be talking, hey, Google, go this. Hey, Alexa, search this. And if you have something like, say, Lyft, they might not be able to catch it because Lyft is spelled in a weird way. Um, whereas right. studying.com or go to studying.com is super easy and they could instantly recognize it. And the word studying has been embedded and taught to people over the last, you know, thousands of years. The word studying, everyone knows it, and that's a thousand years worth of free marketing. Whereas Uber and Lyft had to pay literally eight figures, like $10 million, $20 million just in marketing to now teach people what Uber means, what Lyft means. And I get to skip that whole curve. So that's sort of why it was so significant. Yeah, you know, one thing too about uh, a brand like uh, Uber, or I would say this is going to hit Uber harder than it's going to hit Lyft, because um, this is my personal perspective. But when people think of Lyft, I think we think of the fact that it's a Uber alternative, whereas Uber is more ubiquitous with the ride-sharing uh, services. And the issue with these brands is that they can genericize to the point where the act is more relevant in people's minds than the brand that the act represents. So when somebody says Google it, they just think search. Um, Now, Google is a little bit of a more recent example, but um, did you know Taser was a brand name? I did not know that. Yeah. Uh, Taser... Uh, oh, wow. uh, uh, listeners fact check me on that. Yeah. So when people think hear taser, they, they don't think of the, the taser brand. They just think of this device that people use to defend themselves. Wow. So initially the brand taser created tasers and they like the ta- the definition of what a taser is. That's insane. That's super cool. Yeah. And so th- that's something that uh, brands have to watch out for because it gets to a point where things went too well. And while it's ubiquitous with, tasing um it, it doesn't do the brand any favors but what you've done is you cir- like you said you circumvented that you just went with the word that is already um well established in in culture and society and so when people go to studying.com they 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 know what they're looking for um but it's also it's a it's a it's it's a, it's a significant burden too right you're because you're shouldering the responsibility of taking a word that has been around culturally for a thousand years at least so uh what do you intend to do with it to um rise to the occasion yeah so right now i teach people all over the world how to do drop shipping and e-commerce and marketing online 
but eventually I want to be able to teach people things like sales, how to start like a clothing brand, how to start a YouTube brand, how to start a podcast, um, how to sort of grow your TikTok account. And obviously I cannot sort of offer all these services. Initially, I will teach a lot of these things, but eventually I want to bring people on to sort of teach these services, you know, bring on someone like you um, and be like, yo, Joseph, like how do you grow a podcast? How do you attract people? How do you get guests? And how do you teach a lesson of that? And have you basically tell, hey, talk to your audience, be like, hey, guys, if you guys want to go ahead and learn how to start a podcast, go to studying.com forward dash Joseph for my podcast course. I want to basically become the high-end version of Udemy and not focus on the content, but focus on the membership portal. So right now with my portal, like, oh, this is taking things full circle. So in the portal, there's like a leveling system. So when people watch videos, they gain EXP. So they're incentivized to watch many, many videos. On top of that, there's a level board. Right now, the max level is like 100. The next person's like, you know, the top person's like 50, 48, uh, 47. So everyone's trying to watch more videos. And what I want to do is I also have this amazing group chat that I want to build um, right now sort of in the works where people get EXP every time they talk in the group chat. So incentivize people to create a sort of um, active community. Now, if people answer someone else's questions and they get like a thumbs up or someone rates the reply to their question, a thumbs up could be worth, say, 50 EXP. So now people are incentivized to give good answers to other people. Um, so I really gamified the experience. And I think that's sort of what will attract teachers to studying.com. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing I'm, I have a vision for uh, with the, the, the um, I was about to say evolution, and I guess that works. I, I hate when I don't quite get the right word, but, uh, you know, you're, you're starting with your area of expertise and through, you know, I guess, uh, connections on LinkedIn or, or whom, however you're connected to people, you'll reach out to uh, people like myself who are experts in our field. And then from there, it continues to grow and expand where, more people are reaching out to other people. Um, so one thing I do uh, wonder is if there are any limitations to what can be studied, because I think if people are going to studying.com, really the sky should be the limit. If somebody wants to learn how to weave a basket, I would expect they should be able to go there and get what they want to know. Exactly, and I think that 100%. And I think what could really incentivize people to buy all these courses is maybe cap the amount of experience you could learn through one course. So now have the leveling system be worldwide. So initially I was thinking, okay, if they join my dropshipping course, they start at level zero and they level up to level 100. And then when they go through, say, your podcast course, they start at level zero again and they level up. But I think that wouldn't be too fun. Like what if they had a studying.com account where it's sort of universal where every single course they consume, that's more EXP they're getting. So now like everyone will be just trying to learn. Everyone's like doing whatever they can to learn. Um, I'm obviously going to have to figure out how the group chats would work. Should there be individual group chats for individual courses? Um, how, like how to do all that things. Um, but I think the gamification is what's going to be the unique, like that's going to be the new way to learn. And I also want to be like, I'm going to be focusing a lot on AI. Like I want to, be able to create like YouTube algorithm where I can recommend people the next sort of most similar course. I want to be able to have students go through a course and have them sort of show pain points at certain areas or watch focused videos on certain areas for my sort of AI to know, hey, let's throw these guys more videos about that topic. And the unique thing about my course, it's multi-parented. So whereas most people might sh- show one video of them doing product research and them rating like 10 products in a row, I literally have... 46 recordings of me rating thousands of products from 46 different students from all over the world so that now, you know, the student might be like, how the hell do I know how to rate a product after watching you do it once in this 10-minute video? Well, I have 46 mm-hmm. videos so that if you struggle, go through all 46 and eventually the AI can sort of feed you more videos on different topics again and again with different variations. So that's sort of the end goal. Um, I think the, the gamification is how getting my, my creative juices flowing too. Um, this is a pitched right, right here, right now is have you considered a quest based system where if you, you assign people? Yeah. Well, I have not yet. I definitely want to do like create action items where like 
they'll complete these action lines of quests and they'll get like a bulk mm-hmm. XP. That's yeah, a good and one. I'll, I'll give you one other pitch and then uh, I want to move on to another question, uh, but also education related. I think Skyrim is popular enough that if I bring it up, I, a good chunk of our listeners will know what I'm talking about because chances are everybody has at least one device that plays Skyrim. And when people level up their characters, there's all these different trees that they can specialize in. And I don't think this is specific to Skyrim, but I think the more people um, will level up into certain trees, they do experience diminishing returns. So the more expertise they've re- they've reached, the they won't get the same value out of if they were to invest that point into a brand new skill tree. So what I'm just thinking about here is the idea of people having their avatars and you're seeing their skill trees and you're saying, wow, this guy is really proficient in, um, in, in sub, I was about to say subterfuge because (laughs) I I just love that word, but also has, um, elements of proficiencies in these other uh, traits as well. So, um, and then what you do is, you know, these are people that you can reach out to. And then those people are incentivized to answer those questions because that's a quest or they'll be rewarded for helping other people. So and there's getting the, getting the game side of it too. That's massive. That's uh that, that's a, that's a breakthrough. So hats off to you. Like what I'm thinking is like, imagine if there was like a Pentagon, you know, those Pentagons where there's like, usually in games, it will be like strength, dexterity, luck, um, yeah. those intelligence, etc. But if there was a Pentagon where one was like, I don't know, like um, sales, personal mm-hmm. development, fitness, um, have five different things. And based on the course they sort of watch and based on like the content they consume and the courses they go through, they gain XP for those certain different things. And like you can sort of see where they specialize in. They could either be an all-rounder where they do a bit of everything, um, but it will sort of make it endless where this would become like an RPG, but you are the main character. Like I've always seen myself as a main character. What I was going to say is the main character in this sort of RPG um, because I always was like the reason why RPGs are so addictive is because you're leveling this character of yours. But what if you're the main right. character and I'm leveling myself every single day and this is going to be a game changer. Now I'm going to work day and night to get this happening and I'm going to cut out this clip and send it to my developer who's also just as involved and be like, yo, this is sort of the vision. Fantastic. I, I'm, I'm excited for it. Uh, and I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a little speechless, which is not a good thing for somebody who uh, does an audio show. But it, your answer, eras past what I thought um, was going on. I, I wasn't sure what to make of it. But uh, just hearing, hearing in, like you said, coming full circle, your, your initial experience in games, you understood that games can be a way for us to learn about ourselves and and you're bringing it back to that, um, which uh, is, I think, respecting your roots, uh, which is something that I appreciate. Because when I was young, I was always, like, thinking of, like, building my own game, like, creating my own version of MapleStory and all these different cool ideas on how people could gain XP. And that sort of dream sort of died out because I didn't have coding knowledge. I knew you couldn't really make money in games. So making a game is way harder than you think. But sort of funny how life works and it has come full circle where I'm able to apply that sort of similar enthusiasm and the ideas and the what you just told me has definitely catalyzed me to even think bigger <laughs> because what I was initially thinking was like each course is its own thing so for example if you had your own po- podcast course you would have your own group of students they'll have their own portal everyone will start from level zero and each course was independent but what if every single course was a part of starting.com well um it's uh, I'm I'm a I'm a bit of a predestination kind of guy, so it, it sounds to me like uh, the idea came at the time it was meant to come. So you know, happy to do my part to make the world a better place. Thank you, I appreciate it. Anytime. So, what uh, other education question for you, and then we'll get you to our, our wrap up question. So, you, I mean, with this, yeah, I guess you kind of answered it uh, to some degree already, but let's ask it again, anyways. Uh, what would you like to see change in the education system, and? And and we'll we'll direct this more to the institution of schools and you know what people are going through right now. What do you what would you like to see different about it? Got it. I really want to see it decentralized. So right now you're forced to go to college, you're forced to go to university, and you're forced to pay these high fees. But education is digital, like books, text. It's all digital, and it shouldn't be paid for. 
um, eventually AIs would be able to do everything for you. Like, for example, every single question I get, every single question I then answer gets plugged into this Q&A master sheet. So eventually, just like the multivariated course, eventually I film enough content on a certain topic, I answer enough questions, the there's going to be every single answer. Um, eventually an AI or like a search function could basically pull up every single question and, and answer and literally there'll be no roadblocks. Like I'm happy, like every single student that comes in and every question I get is a new question that I can re-put into the course. So eventually courses and content and education is going to become like free and like I really want to try to be the first to do that. Right now, it it does cost money because I can't afford to make it free. But eventually, my long-term goal is to bring all the courses in Sunny.com down to free, just like a free MMO, but have things on the back ends for creators or me that we can sort of, you know, extra add-ons if you want some free one-on-one course with the teacher. If you want to be able to, say, unlock um, more videos rather than one video a day, but basically make it free so that just like a game, everyone can enjoy it and everyone can learn. Yeah. You know, so I've asked this question a couple of times whenever anybody has like a um, strong uh, uh, bent towards the educational side, but I haven't actually expressed my own view on it too. And I think for me, the main thing that I don't like about the educational system is the time limit where people feel like they have to get through elementary school in the first eight years and then they go right to high school and then go right to college. Uh, what I would like to see in schools is more of a free form system where people can sign up for classes. Let's say I apply for a job and I need a grade eight level of, ed- of math and my math level is currently grade six and I'm 32 years old or whatever. So I go to, I go to school, I sign up for the class, I get my, my, my math courses and then I, I, I'm now qualified for this job that I'm applying for. And within those classes, as opposed to being stuck with the same people for eight years, some of whom I got along with, some of whom I did not get along with, it's a whole new group of people with varying degrees of experience, people that can become my friends, people that might have their own opportunities for me, old people, young people, immigrants, locals, all sorts. And education should be something that people pursue throughout their whole life. And and that to me is, I think, one of the greatest uh, tragedies about education in general is that uh, we're conditioned to think that this is something that we have to get out of our system. All right, we've got our we've got our learning done, and now we move into the workforce. When learning and work is two constants that are throughout our whole life. So, me, that's where I would like to see some differences. Yeah, and I really think that it should be customized. Like, there's no reason that everyone should be learning the same thing at the same rate. It should be customized to the student and that's sort of where AI can really come in. All right. Well, Andy, this has been fantastic. I, you know, I, I'm, I think I'm at like 40 interviews so far. And the thing I keep wondering is how are they going to continue to uh, change my perspective or be something unique for me to experience? Uh, sometimes I wonder how like Joe Rogan He's like, what, like a thousand episodes in? And I think, oh man, he's talked to so many people. How is each person still significant? And, and I think what's important is for the time that we, that we get to, uh, we interact, um, that's what matters most. And, uh, and, I, and I take that with me uh, from episode to episode. So uh, I'm super grateful for the time I got to uh, spend with you today. And I know that we're, we're going to have a dialogue going on after this because there's no way this is where this, this train stops. So last question for you is, if you have any parting wisdom, an answer to a question that I forgot to ask, uh, this is an opportunity to uh, share it with us and then let people know how to get in touch with you. Awesome. So my last parting wisdom, something that I really try to stick to is small steps every single day. Let me do small steps forward every single day things are eventually going to work out. Everything that happens, happens for a reason. Like right now, it might not make sense, but in like three months time, it's going to be like, okay, that thing had to happen for me to get into this situation. So whatever struggles that you're going to, try to embrace and be like, okay, this needs to happen or something amazing to happen later on. And I think that's sort of what I want to end the podcast with. And if you guys want to learn more, just Google Andy Mai, Instagram, YouTube, most social media platforms under Andy Mai, M-A-I. 
And yeah, you could also go to studying.com if you want to learn more. I really, I really appreciate the time. I love the questions that you've been asking and it's been an amazing podcast experience. Great to be on. Thank you. It means a lot to me to hear that. And it means a lot to me that our listeners uh, are staying with us and are uh, engaged in this content. So don't ever be shy, people. Uh, reach out, let us know what you think. And we will check in soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you. So whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next.